On October 6th, 1967, a few episodes into its second season, Star Trek aired the episode Mirror Mirror, introducing the concept of the Mirror Universe to Star Trek, and to pop culture in general. In the Mirror Universe, up was down, black was white, and the heroic utopian ideals of Trek's United Federation of Planets was replaced by brutal authoritarianism and imperialism. It was indeed a dark reflection of what the show had seemingly been about up until then. The Mirror Universe became a key part of Trek lore. It has appeared over and over again in Trek shows right up to the present day, used to contrast a possible dystopia against the utopian future depicted in the main Trek timeline. But in another way, Star Trek has always been about contrasting the best of humanity with the worst. Most of the characters and civilizations the crew of the Enterprise encountered, especially in the original series, were intended to mirror or comment upon our society in the present day. Sometimes, this commentary involved depicting a darker path, which the glorious future of Star Trek had avoided. But what was that future, exactly? Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associated with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or, to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be challenging the idea that Star Trek is just one thing, or even one set of things. Is it campy surrealism, or a legitimate attempt at real sci-fi? Is it the vision of Gene Roddenberry, or is he actually a fairly minor contributor? Is it neoliberal, Marxist, technocratic, militaristic, pacifistic, materialist, spiritual? Above all else, Star Trek is supposed to be about a better future. But the thousands of voices that have made up Star Trek have different ideas of what that better future might look like. For the next few episodes, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Star Trek and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Alright, hello everyone. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Star Trek Mirror Universe podcast. Um, I'm uh, Adam Prosser. And I'm Douglas McDonald-Norman. Yes, and uh, we're uh, going to do a limited little Star Trek podcast to uh, thrash out some of the ideas we've had about Star Trek and uh, just some some other Trek-related stuff that we, we thought might be of interest to talk about. Um, let us introduce ourselves. I'm uh, the host of uh, another podcast, uh, What Mad Universe, uh, and uh, we did we did do uh, an episode that was specifically about uh, Star Trek, um, and uh, which was called uh, Beyond the farthest star. And, uh, it was, um, it was, uh, it, it sort of inspired a lot of ideas that I've had rattling around my head ever since. And, um, uh, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm just a, a schlub who lives in Toronto. I don't have anything particularly interesting about my life, all my creative projects. <laughs> so I thought, Hey, what the heck? Uh, and I'd been uh, talking to Douglas, uh, on, uh, line and I, we actually met via, uh, Carl Garcia, who is a uh, a guy who live tweets about Star Trek? Uh, Douglas, you want to introduce yourself? So, um, my name's Douglas. I'm a lawyer from Australia. 
I have been a Star Trek fan for as long as I can remember, but it's become increasingly important in my life in the last few years because of the ever-escalating darkness of the real world. As Adam mentioned, both of us are avid followers of Carl Garcia, who tweets at carlinspace on twitter.com. Carl, for reasons best known to him, has decided to live-tweet all of Star Trek over the course of several years, and Adam and I got to know each other in the course of commenting on and replying to Carl's posts, and ultimately trying to work out what exactly Star Trek is, what Star Trek can be, and when Star Trek falls short of the ideals it sets for itself. We decided to do this podcast to expand upon those conversations and to distract ourselves from the ever-encroaching darkness of the real world. <laughs> yes, we've got a lot of ever-encroaching darkness uh, these days. Uh, maybe it'll be better. It's As we sp- speak these worlds, it's uh, early 2021. So who knows? Maybe the darkness will lift a little in the coming year. Fingers crossed. We all want to think that. Um, but anyway, I want to get right into it uh, as much as we can. Um, so... Uh, what I thought of initially as the central thesis, maybe Douglas disagrees with me on this, uh, but that we'd be talking about was um, the idea that uh, Trek, which became synonymous in more than almost anything except possibly superhero comics, uh, became uh, synonymous with the idea of a fan base that meticulously picked out the background of the canon and uh, all the extra stuff that wasn't necessarily on screen and tying it into some kind of coherent, consistent uh, um, uh, mythos um, and fans filling in the blanks. Um, and that, that you know, Trek was the one that, that, that's the number one thing we think of when we think of uh, uh, fandoms that do that. And to the point where, you know, everything else has become similar in that regard. Uh, but um, it actually works as well as it does precisely because uh, it's so hard to pin down. Um, I think in weird ways, Star Trek is actually uh, something that doesn't have a very consistent uh, canon and a consistent mythos. And it's been many things to many different people, and I think that's actually one of its strengths. So I'm going to challenge one of the central uh, planks of Star Trek fandom in that regard. I think Adam and I, over the next few episodes, are going to be furiously agreeing with each other on that. When Star Trek stops evolving, (laughs) Star Trek dies. And when Star Trek becomes wedded to a particular idea of what the show involves, especially in terms of how it tells stories, then the show stagnates and ultimately becomes self-defeating. Part of the genius of Star Trek is that it has adapted, that it has evolved to suit different audiences, to speak to different contemporary demands, and that ultimately the show's internal history is subject to that need to remain relevant to changing times. Ultimately, as much as we can try to pin down what happened and when in the Star Trek timeline, it has the same effect as pinning down a butterfly on a board. It may look pretty, but it does kill the butterfly. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, which is not to say that uh, Star Trek hasn't done fun and interesting things with uh, going back to, you know, offhand references and ideas and trying to uh, to formulate them down a little bit. I don't think anyone would object to the fact that uh, despite the first few episodes, not really knowing what the organization the Enterprise belongs to, the Enterprise crew belongs to is called until uh, I, I, do you know, do you remember which episode they, they say Starfleet on for the first time? 
I do not, which is going to be the other thing that um, I'm going to be speaking in broad generalities because a lot of these individual trivial details about who said what when <laughs> are not all that important. Right. But the, as Adam has noted, in the original series, you see a shift from the United Earth Space Probe Agency to Starfleet in a seamless and organic way <laughs> that the show itself, crucially, doesn't think is all that important. It doesn't really matter where they've come from. In the original series, what matters is where they're going. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I do know that, uh, for instance, they first mentioned the Federation, the United Federation of Planets, in the episode Arena, which is uh, a fair chunk into the first season, for instance. Um and, you know, and again, this is fine. Uh, I, I do want to make it clear. It's, it was something, they were evolving the backstory and the mythos of Star Trek. Uh, it was coming together. Uh, both, uh, actually, multiple Star Trek shows, uh, almost all of them, have ha have gone through a bit of a tumultuous time in the early going uh, before they settled into what they were. And the original series was uh, the same. Uh, as things sort of shifted almost immediately, I would say, from uh, Gene Roddenberry to uh, Gene L. Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana being more the uh, guiding hands on the tiller uh, for the show. Uh, that that was, I think, part of it. Uh, there was also just a sense of, as you say, it didn't matter where they came from. It, it, Earth is not a big factor, and, and even the, the larger political uh, sphere of Star Trek took a while to become even that significant. Uh, they, they, they definitely didn't have anything about, you know, wars or, or uh, larger political conflicts until the show had been on for a little, a little while. Um, so that, you know, it, they're, they're, they definitely sort of let it come together organically. But at the same time, it's, it is also very interesting to, uh, as we'll get into later, to read all the different interpretations of what the utopian Star Trek future is like. If I'm not mistaken, uh, sorry, Douglas, I'm, <laughs> I'll shut up in a minute. Um, but uh, I, uh, there's a moment where um, uh, they, uh, they talk about in the Bible uh, for the original series, if I'm not mistaken, they quite literally say, well, the future is a utopia. Uh, mankind has solved war and racism and come together as, uh, as you know, uh, as a united people. And uh, we don't know how that happened. We don't really care. We're just going on and exploring space. That's what the show's about. <laughs> so I think they've left a lot of latitude for people in that. Yeah, I think that's right. With the original series, it takes place against the background of a far more inchoate and ill-defined utopia than Next Gen. And that's because the utopia is not really what the original series is about. It provides context, but it's a show that is less evangelical in its view of the potential future than certainly some of the future Star Trek shows are. And I think that that's, crucially, that's fine. It's not a weakness on the part of the original series that it takes place against the background of a relatively thinly sketched universe. Indeed, it's part of its strength that it adds to a show in which, unlike almost any other Trek show, anything can happen. There's no real limits upon the nature of the stories you can tell or the nature of the universe in which it takes place. You get to paint on that blank canvas. And I think one of the things that's important to recognise with this podcast is that for everything Star Trek has gained through a more detailed, more solid universe, there are also trade-offs and drawbacks, such as the loss of the ability to enjoy the degree of freedom that the writers of the original series had. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the uh, interesting things, because a lot of people criticize Star Trek. Well, it's always about Starfleet. It's always about the military or the paramilitary, if you like. Uh, it's, you, you know, what what's it like to live in the Federation? And 
I think that's very much intentional that they don't show you the day to day life of the Federation as much, and that they and what they have shown you is so conflicting uh, because it is a canvas you can project on yourself. I think that's actually um, partly by design and partly by uh, just the sense of yeah, but that's not what the show's about. That's not what we should be focusing on anyway. We should be focusing on you know uh, all the, the 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 bleeding edge, the frontier, the 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 exploration that's going on. So that when you do, and there have been a number of some uh, dubiously canonical takes on what it is like to live in uh, the Federation or what it's like on Earth. Uh, Earth is seen as it is in the time of Star Trek, as opposed to time travel and alternate realities and so forth, uh, Earth itself is seen very, very infrequently on Star Trek, um, which is significant. If I, I should point out, of course, the Federation is supposed to be more than Earth. Except, well, there's a, there's a step right there. I, I think as it was initially conceived, um, they saw it more as uh, the coming together of humanity in peace, uh, and they weren't as focused at the very beginning on different alien races coming together with humanity. I think the Federation may have been a, intended as a human-only organization when it was first introduced. Do you think so? I think that's a really interesting interpretation of it. And I think there's a textual support for it. Because even in the original series, you see McCoy making joking references to, well, we, we know how Vulcan was co conquered. Right. The idea that the Federation is a coalition of different alien races who've come together to overcome their differences is one that has evolved gradually over time. And indeed, what we see of that model of the Federation in the original series is a fairly ramshackle coalition. Even in Journey to Babel, the original series episode that introduces some of the key aspects or species of the Federation, the entire enterprise, so to speak, seems to be on the verge of breaking down over mining rights. So the <laughs> idea that the Federation is some indissoluble coalition of different alien races is not something that emerged in its final form. It's something which has been sketched together from references to a Federation, which could mean anything, from some on-text references which don't really support what the organisation is later depicted as, and ultimately by a substantial amount of conjecture and filling in the gaps. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, what's actually, uh, yeah, Journey to Babel is definitely the foundational episode where we start to go, okay, this is the Federation as we recognize it. But as you point out, um, there's all this internal dissent and conflict in Journey to Babel. It's about how they don't see eye to eye and they don't agree with each other. Um, and it, in, in many ways, it seems to be a transactional relationship. Um one of the uh, spin-off novels uh, issued later uh, actually suggested that uh, the Federation is constantly forming and reforming. Uh, it's almost like technically the way Cong U.S. Congress is supposed to work, where it's formed out of a certain group every time. It meets, it legislates, and then it dissolves only to meet again in six months or whatever the time is. Uh, and that you could technically have a race that drops out of the Federation and then comes back and so on and so forth. So it's almost more like a, like a, a universal agreement than it is a, a governing body. Um, there's also the fact that um, it was obviously intended to be the United Nations in outer space. That was, that was how they probably thought of it at the time in the, in the original series. Um, and the United Nations of course, doesn't have a lot of uh, oversight ability to 
I mean, well, <laughs> that, we're getting, that's a getting into a dodgy territory, I guess, but the United Nations doesn't rule the world in and of itself. It's, it's the idea of a, you know, a, at least in theory, a meeting of equals uh, that gets together and, and discusses things. Well, as, as a lawyer, which is how I'm going to be beginning a lot of sentences in this podcast, as a lawyer, there is <laughs> enormous ambiguity as to what various institutions in the Federation do and what the Federation itself does. I completely agree. The opening vision seems to have been that the Federation is an analogue to the United Nations. Even Futurama leads off with the joke that someone is bit more likely to understand the United Nations from Star Trek than they do from the actual United Nations. But then as the show <laughs> goes on, different writers see the Federation, to greater or lesser degrees, as the United Nations or as a, a, a future analogue to the United States itself. We see... In some circumstances, the Federation Council is a legislature. In some circumstances, it exercises executive functions. In some circumstances, it works as a judicial body convened to try Starfleet officers over offences of mutiny and disobedience of orders. Part of this is because non-lawyers don't understand law. But another, more significant part of it is that the Federation, like most Star Trek concepts, is ultimately instrumental what it does and what its analogues are, are ultimately driven by the needs of an individual story and the particular message that a given writer is trying to send. Given that, and I'm going to be controversial here, none of this actually happened or is going to happen. And given that, controversially, <laughs> it's all a TV show. The Federation is ultimately less significant as a governing body given that it doesn't actually exist and governs no one, than it is as a mechanism through which the writers have commented on the values and controversies of their given times. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, that is that is obviously what Star Trek is. If there's one thing I think Star Trek is about, I think that's actually a fair thing <laughs> that you could attribute to pretty much all of Star Trek. I don't think that's a very controversial thing to generalize about uh, when it comes to Star Trek. And it is also true that a lot of what we get from the Federation comes from the fact that we're seeing it through Starfleet, which is the paramilitary body of the Federation, and probably has a bit more of a hierarchy, a bit more of, a bit more in the way of rules, and a bit more in the way of uh, enforcement than perhaps uh, the, the, the civilian life in the Federation. Um, and in fact, Federation, uh, one of the main things we see them doing for the Federation usually is uh, signing treaties and uh, getting trade rights, basically. Um, so in that sense, it actually ends up being externally uh, pretty pretty capitalistic in that regard. Um, but also, you know, we, we sometimes see that there are literal uh, corporations in the Star Trek universe, or at least, uh, you know, mercantile guilds and things like that. And we also see that there are, you know, that it's a very charitable organization, that it goes out and tries to help people whenever there's any problems, even if it's not a Federation member, they'll zoom out to help usually. Uh, although, of course, the Prime Directive and everything. Um, but uh, that actually brings me, I think, to Gene Roddenberry. So uh, I think we should uh, talk a bit about uh, Roddenberry himself. Uh, and the fact that he probably had one vision and other people may have had slightly different visions in terms of the writing uh, of the show itself. Um, Gene Roddenberry was an Air Force pilot uh, who uh, was then a police officer uh, who actually wrote speeches, I believe, for uh, the L.A. Police Department, uh, police commissioner. And um, uh, he's... 
it's a little surprising, I've always said, that given that background, that he was anywhere near as liberal as he was, <laughs> um, even in the 60s. Um, he, you know, he, he was surprisingly chill for all that background uh, would have uh, would have implied. Yeah, that's it's an interesting point that Gene Roddenberry's background definitely filters into Star Trek, but he seems to have come to a non-stereotypical set of views on the basis of it. To the extent that it does inform the show, I think you're right. You're absolutely right to point out that we see the Federation through Starfleet, which could have something to do with the fact that Roddenberry's encounters with government bodies arose in the context of military and police service. If all you knew about how the United States government functioned came from NCIS, then you would think that the United States was 99% Navy officers, 50% of whom are murderers or being murdered at any one time. Uh, 100%. And so Roddenberry's military and police service is potentially relevant in terms of how he saw state authority. Certainly the fact that he saw a future with few or no lawyers in it is potentially something which intersects in interesting ways with the fact that he had been a police officer. Um, Now, the way that I've set this out in our notes, which I'm just going to quote verbatim, is that the key debate about Gene Roddenberry tends is this. Was he a genius with a dream that became a reality that stretched across the stars, who fought for a utopian vision of a post-capitalist society? Or was Gene Roddenberry a seedy crank, whose one good idea was made possible by the smarter and better people who worked for him. I'm going to, again, be controversial and suggest that maybe it's a bit of both. (laughs) Yes. The answer to that is yes. (laughs) He's kind of both. It's funny because we spent, uh, when I came up, Roddenberry was a legend. You know, he was within the Star Trek fan base. It was... Oh, the legendary Gene Roddenberry, and oh, the great Gene Roddenberry, and and uh, there were all these uh, hagiographies written of him, and um, uh, it wasn't until, and of course, he he passed on in uh, I think ninety two or ninety three. Uh, so of course, then people had nothing but good things to say about him for most of the Berman era, um, I, even as you know the internet geared up and you had a bit more of a, a potentially. Uh, uh, cacophonous fan culture that wouldn't always toe the party line. Um, it was still kind of saying, well, you know, it was Roddenberry. It was the great bird of the galaxy. We've got to, uh, we've got to remember him as he was. Uh, but we've now finally sort of spun around to uh, being very critical of Gene Roddenberry. Most people are now aware that uh, both that he wasn't always the greatest guy and that uh, he probably was in no way the singular genius behind Star Trek. That's uh Clearly, it was a group effort by many, 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 many people. Um, and in fact, it, it, it some people go so far as to say Runbury was not really that. He was, you know, a fairly minor part of what made Star Trek Star Trek. Um, but uh, which isn't inaccurate. Now, I almost want to sort of spin it back, swing the pendulum back around to saying, well, you know, let's not discount Runbury entirely. Uh, <laughs> he, he, um, one thing as I understand about Runbury is that uh, one of his first uh, pilots. Uh, in the early 60s was for a show called uh, The Lieutenant, I believe, uh, which was going to be, I, I, guess, I think, an early version of something like uh, JAG or CSIS or whatever, where it was um, about the military tribunals and the military uh, legal system. And um, he did want to do an episode, apparently, very badly uh, about uh, racism within the military. And it had been used, you know, they had a lot of cooperation from the military. And um, he... Uh, 
you know, and at that point they wanted to say, well, let's tackle the issue of institutional racism in the military. And the military basically said, uh, no, we're not going to let you, do, you know, we want some changes to this. Well, they said they want changes. And uh, if you don't do it, then, you know, we're not going to let you have access to our, uh, to our equipment and to our, you know, our base, our facilities and so on. And um, Roddenberry got the pressure from NBC, but apparently he went to the NAACP and actually said, do you know what they're doing? And he stirred up this sort of controversy, uh, which put pressure on them to make the episode, which I did believe, do believe got filmed and, and, and uh, broadcast. Uh, but the show then got canceled not long after that, and that may have been a major factor. And I think that actually tells you a lot about how Roddenberry operated right there. He was not afraid to go behind the backs of even the people in power and sort of go right to the fans, or in this case, another, an exterior institution, uh, and say, you know, hey, look at, to, to go to the people, as it were, and say, oh, look at, look at what's happening in TV, back me up and I'll fight for you, um, which was in some ways slimy and in some ways admirable. It's actually a weird uh, combination of both of those things. So uh, Gene Roddenberry died in 1991 when I was one year old. He has not been an active part of the production of Star Trek for my entire life. And yet, nearly 30, 30 years on, he is more synonymous with Star Trek than anyone else who was not a cast member on the show. And that is in part because... That is in part because he was a great storyteller. But the story that he was most gifted at telling was the story of Gene Roddenberry. Now, I, I think it's really interesting that you bring up, um, to set it right, the episode about segregation of the lieutenant. Um, as I understand it from Wikipedia, to set it right was produced, but it was never actually broadcast. Roddenberry did go to the NACC, the NAACP to agitate for pressure to be placed on the network to air the episode, and fought very, very hard for the episode to be produced and to be aired, which I think is an extraordinarily noble and brave gesture, especially in the context of the 1960s and in the context of being a relatively junior producer without enormously deep links in Hollywood. There is an enormous amount to admire about Roddenberry's courage and about his idealism, and there is an enormous amount that Star Trek owes to him in his gifts as a salesman in terms of how much he pressured the network to produce the show in terms of his organizing role especially in the show's early years in selling the show to the network and overcoming the enormous barriers that no doubt existed to many of its more controversial concepts but at the same time it is very difficult in telling stories about Gene Roddenberry to separate Gene Roddenberry's sense of self from what actually happened. He is a man who, especially in his later years, had an enormous vested interest in telling a particular neat, tidy story of how Star Trek was produced, of the values that underlay the show, and of the role that he had played in its creation. And so the story of Star Trek is sometimes difficult to untangle and involves mutually, incom mutually inconsistent and contradictory accounts 
Right. Uh, 100%. Um, that is, that is, uh, I, I want to move on a bit, just uh, there's a there's a lot of ground we want to cover here, but uh, I, I, I actually think there's a lot of overlap between what uh, Gene Roddenberry did and what Stan Lee did uh, with Marvel. And it's a similarly problematic figure, a similar figure who's uh, got all the credit, then there was a big backlash and maybe he got pushed back on even harder than he deserved. Uh, but it was in both cases, they were the salesmen. They were the, they were the face of uh, this story that was being told. And that's why uh, everyone remembers them. And it's also why they were able to grab <laughs> more credit than perhaps they were, they, they, they deserved. Um, so I think there's actually, a, it's surprising how many parallels there are there uh, between Roddenberry and, and someone like Stan Lee. Absolutely. Um, and uh, even you could actually argue George Lucas, to a certain extent, George Lucas, uh, too, who is undeniably pro had more to do with Star Wars uh, than maybe the other two did with their creations. But he, again, there was a team and he sort of became the singular genius visionary, uh, whereas people like Marshall Lucas and, and uh, many other people who contributed sort of got written out of the story in the same way. Um, but um, it is. I, th I think the Stan Lee comparison is spot on. Yeah, I, I think I think there's 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 definitely a series of people like that in pop culture who uh, <laughs> they sold a dream, and that's not nothing. That's nothing to sneeze at. But it's also not the end all and be all of you know what made it great. Uh, so we should mention you know some of the other people. Of course, uh, two big names are Gene L. Coon and Dorothy Fontana. Uh, who were the uh, who were the script editors and 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 head writers for the show for a long stretch? Uh, Robert Justman, John D. F. Black, uh, 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 David Gerald. Um, uh, then there's people like uh, uh, Jeff uh, Walter Art Jeffries, who was of course the art director and from whom we get Jeffrey's Tube. Uh, lots of science fiction writers, including Ted Sturgeon, Harlan Ellison, famously. Uh, and then, of course, you get Fred Freeberger in the, the fifth, in the third season. I actually wanted to quickly quickly mention uh, what what would you say is Fred Freeberger's contribution to Star Trek, Douglas? Fred Fre Fred Freeberger's contribution to Star Trek was allowing Gene Roddenberry to be as revered as he became in his later years by allowing someone else to take the blame for season three. <laughs> Fred yeah. Freeberger had an enormously difficult job. We're not, by and large, we're doing uh, commentary rather than description and assuming a degree of familiarity with the history of Star Trek. But for those who are unfamiliar, Star Trek was cancelled at the end of season two. It was brought back following sustained pressure from fans for a final third season, but on a sharply reduced budget. Gene Roddenberry, who by this stage was a difficult figure for the network to deal with, played a largely ceremonial or hands-off role on season three, meaning that actual producing responsibilities fell for, to a seasoned network hand named Fred Freeberger. The third season of Star Trek is divisive and attracts a lot of criticism from fans. Partially this is because some of the stories are stupid. <laughs> uh, partially this is because some of the stories are less realistic and more explicitly surreal or fable-like, but a lot, a large part of it comes from the fact that it, it was made on a sharply reduced budget by a network that by this stage had lost any interest in producing Star Trek. Mm. Fred Freeberger had an enormously difficult task of producing an expensive show on a minimal budget, having lost some of his best writers, including Gene Elkin, um, 
in an environment of networking difference with a diminishing audience. He did the best that he could and for it spent much of the rest of his life being reviled by Star Trek fans who attributed to him blame for killing Star Trek. Mm. To this end, he commented that the worst time in his life wasn't the years that he spent in a German prisoner of war camp in World War II. It was the third season of Star Trek. Well, which is a more memorable and a funnier line than anything Gene Roddenberry ever said. <laughs> wow. Yes. Um, and that's, that's I think, significant. Uh, Roddenberry did have a habit, as I mentioned, of uh, sort of going to the fans. Like, he, he very quickly realized that he had this army that he could mobilize. And I think um, he used it in ways... Uh, that weren't always the most noble. Uh, later on, I know that, um, like, he he was, of course, uh, the, the, the motion picture is, does seem to have been very much Gene Roddenberry's baby. Uh, he seems to have had uh, very much, you know, ha- been handed the keys to the kingdom on that one because people said, hey, it's Gene Roddenberry, it's Star Trek, he's got to have the, the power. And um, then when that didn't do so well, um, he... Uh, you know, he was sort of shuffled a bit aside uh, for uh, Harv Bennett and... and um, um, uh, Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Meyer, thank you. Um, and I think Roddenberry seems to have felt a bit uh, um, pained about that. And um, it sounds like he actually went to the fans around that time and literally said, um, hey, did you know what's happening? They're going to kill Spock! And, and created a huge fan outcry against uh, Wrath of Khan, which was meant to sort of sabotage the project, apparently. Um, and we sort of forget that because everyone likes Wrath of Khan so much. Uh, but it does sound like at, at a certain point, Roddenberry was kind of at war with Star Trek to a large degree, even when he was brought back in with Next Generation. Uh, you know, he wasn't afraid to sort of uh, just fight everyone, fight the network executives, fight the other writers. Um but but not the fans. He always uh, he always encouraged their uh, their their uh, their enthusiasm. And he was probably he probably had a hand in the big campaign and the 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 after the second season to uh, for the fan write in campaign that helped get the show renewed. He he probably did uh, sort of uh, in, go to some of the major figures like Vijo Trimble and and like he he had a personal relationship with him. It wasn't just random fans writing it. So he he definitely spoke to the fans and, and, and encouraged them to do things. Um, but, um, and, and so now speaking again about Roddenberry then, so he, he probably did envision Star Trek, uh, initially as a very, um, I mean, well, the culture he was aware of, which was the Air Force and the Navy, because he was obsessed with the Navy. Uh, he, of course, saw it as the Navy in space. It's often been compared to Horatio Hornblower in outer space. Um, and, um, and so that was the culture he saw, uh, so that when you watch the early Star Trek, it's it's very much, yeah, we're the space military, and we're out doing military things in space. Um, it's arguable that that was pushed back on. I think that's one of the main things in Star Trek that got pushed back on by people like Kuhn, like for Fontana, uh, various other writers. I think uh, Harold Nelson, certainly. Uh, they wanted it to, uh, you know, as a utopian future, they didn't think it would be as militaristic as Roddenberry had. So I think that's when you just start to develop that initial tension between, hey, is this a military organization or is it a scientific organization or what is it? I think that's exactly right. That Whether Starfleet is a scientific or a military organization is not something that permits of a settled answer because it owes so much to who's writing it at the time 
and indeed owes a lot to how the person writing it at the time views scientific organizations or the military. If it's a utopian future, who does what in the utopian future does depend to an enormous extent on how that person views the present and how that person views contemporary institutions. Going back to your point about Roddenberry and the fans, because I think that actually ties into it somewhat. Roddenberry, over time, I think, became increasingly fixed in his ideas of what Star Trek were, and that's an important part of his relationship with the fans. That having written the show's Bible in the 1960s, he initially approached Star Trek from a relatively broad strokes approach to what the universe had involved. But then as time went on, developed an increasingly calcified view of what Star Trek was and what Star Trek wasn't, and what Star Trek's future involved and what Star Trek's future had no place for. And that ultimately can't purely be viewed in isolation or even necessarily viewed just in terms of Roddenberry's ideology. Part of Roddenberry's intense policing of what Star Trek was owed something to how much role Gene Roddenberry had in the production of Star Trek at any one time. How fixed the Star Trek universe is, is not a purely apolitical debate over what the Federation is like, because, again, the Federation doesn't actually exist. It owes a lot to power struggles between individuals involved in the creation of Star Trek and how different individuals have mobilized the fan base in support of ultimately their own centers of power and different conceptions of what the future looks like, what Starfleet does, how scientific and how science fantasy the universe is, has ultimately been a tool or a club in those internal struggles for power. Yes, 100%. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, I know that Ron Burry liked to claim that I think the fifth and sixth movies he didn't consider to be canon, uh, and it probably had a lot to do with him not having as much say in those movies as he would have liked. Um, there's a, uh, a few people in, uh, who have mentioned, uh, I think in the 50-year voyage, which is the oral history of Star Trek, which is really indispensable, um, they mentioned that they thought that when Next Generation was getting off the ground, um, the fact that Roddenberry was very, very insistent, in a way he hadn't been up to that point, but at that point uh, he started to insist that, well, it's a, it's a utopian future and everyone gets along. People don't have interpersonal conflicts, at least in Starfleet. Uh, people don't have interpersonal conflicts. That was actually a big rule, which famously became to hear some of the writers say, a major millstone around their necks uh, when they were writing Next Generation in particular. Uh, because the idea that you can't have interpersonal conflicts on a television show is uh, is a real is a real uh, thing to write around. And I believe Michael Piller uh, was the one, when he came on in the third season, he was the one who actually was enthusiastic about that. He thought that was actually a really interesting uh prompt to have to write about um so he and that's and that and that's what allowed uh, star trek to orient itself a bit going forward although of course runbury was also increasingly being uh sidelined at that point uh but um it does sound like his initial conception of that with uh the heavy focus on in this case picard the captain and um uh everyone else sort of being subsidiary to Picard and everyone agreeing with him. And he knew what he do. He knew what he was doing. There weren't personal conflicts. There weren't people, there was no insubordination unless you were possessed by an alien being or something. Um, and that was probably Ron Burry projecting himself to a large degree. Like it was the idea of no, no, I'm the chief here and I want everyone to, to do what I say because, you know, of his much vaunted uh, fight 
with network executives over his career. And, and this was sort of his utopia was everyone had to listen to what he had to say and nobody questioned him, um, which is maybe a little mean as, as a, as a framework for it. But I think that is, <laughs> that is, uh, that is what he intended. Yeah, it'd be less mean if it wasn't true. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, I don't think you can, I don't think you can argue that that was probably in his mind to a large degree. And, and there's a lot of, uh, we'll probably talk about it in a few episodes' time, but there are definitely some things that were going on with Roddenberry uh, by the time Next Generation came around as well. Um, but something else I wanted to say about Roddenberry um, is, um, it, as you've probably uh, read, a lot of people know this, I mentioned it on the other podcast, uh, What Mad Universe, um, <clears throat> he wrote the introduction to Star Trek The Motion Picture, which again was probably the last Star Trek thing that was 100% him, or not 100%, but that he had full control over. Um, and he wrote uh, the intro to the novelization of Star Trek, uh, the motion picture. And it's fascinating. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, right, Douglas? Yes. Uh, I, I think that we could devote an entire episode to the novelization of the motion picture because it is, as you said, the most unfiltered example of Gene Rottenberry available. And it is wild mm -hmm. yeah and even just the intro uh is such a heavy retcon of what star trek had been to that point he he, he literally goes so far as to say well the tv show was like a tv production of what actually happened diegetically in the world of star trek because you know anything i did agree, didn't agree with and want to retcon is because of that essentially a wizard did it essentially um <laughs> and he can um he 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 posited a really fascinating alternate world of star trek where uh earth had become this sort of hive mind of uh, sentient computers that controlled everything and telepaths played a major role and people like kirk were out exploring the frontier because they didn't really fit in with that society they were out uh, on the edge of the the frontier uh, because they didn't want to be part of this unitarian or not unitarian this uh, <laughs> hive mind society this collectivist society that had been created and that's fascinating because that was not it's almost this weird thing of becoming a communist by going around the back way <laughs> and looping in uh, through embrace of technology but it was clearly motivated by what the fans had read into Star Trek rather than what he'd intended. And yet he adopted it and he embraced it. I think any contemporary author of Star Trek who attempted to refine or redevelop canon to the extent that Roddenberry does in the motion picture novelization would be absolutely tarred and feathered. We've seen enormous fan ruptures over whether the Federation and the Klingons were at war and what that involved 10 years before Next Gen, uh, 10 years before the original series in Discovery. In contemporary Star Trek, filling in the margins is a point of controversy. But by the time of the motion picture, all of this was sufficiently inchoate that you could say that James was the son of that James was given that name after his mother's favourite birthing partner in the communitarian sex-positive future in which traditional marital and family relationships <laughs> had broken down. And that was regarded as pretty much fair game. And I think that this is important in a couple of ways. One is that when we talk about Star Trek canon, it's not as if we began with clear rules of what was canon and what wasn't. We have seen the gradual calcification of how we determine what happened in the Trek universe and how we didn't. 
but also because it demonstrates, like I said, that different people legitimately have different takes on the relatively thin textual evidence that we have. Going against the NCIS example, you could look at NCIS and view it as basically the contemporary United States, or you could look at it from another political perspective and regard it as a dystopian future in which the Navy solves all crimes. And both would be legitimate interpretations of the show because you have such a thin read upon which to base it. I think one of the important things to uphold is that there is a diversity of legitimate perspectives and that when we try to pin Star Trek down to there's one vision of what happened and what didn't, ultimately that's not only not supported by the show, it is in itself its own sort of power play because the question is whose interpretation is legitimate, what does that serve and what does that interpretation come from? All too often. Yeah these interpretations of what happened in Star Trek and what didn't have served as a way of excluding voices from the fandom rather than serving any legitimate textual end. And and that's interesting, and that, like this is why I bring it up, because we already mentioned Roddenberry liked to you know, pass judgment on what was right and what was wrong and so on, to a certain degree, you know, limit the canon and, and say what could be done. And um, But he was very clearly, when he wrote that, inspired by what the fans had had contributed to Star Trek. It was him literally saying, well, you know what? The fans made me who I am. Whatever you want to say about Roddenberry, he knew the fans had made him what he was. And he said, you know what? If the fans say Star Trek is this uh, incredibly uh, progressive, borderline Marxist, or maybe anarcho-syndicalist, who, who's to say? Uh, if it's this techno-utopia, if uh, some of the ideas that are arguably... Uh, uh, seen as bad in the original series, but got embraced by the fans as good. Um, well, I'm going to say that that's true. I'm going to embrace them as good. Uh, to use an example, this so this will spin us back around to talking about the original show and how it took shape. Um, in the original show, there's a very strong argument that the Prime Directive was not meant to be seen positively. Um, you could argue that it was it, it existed primarily to show that Kirk didn't play by your rules, man. He's a lone wolf. He does what he needs to do to get the job done. And, uh, you know, so he knows that this society's messed up and he's not going to sit back and, and, and not interfere. He's going to get in there and interfere. Um, the mere fact that Kirk ignored the prime directive so often, uh, sort of reflects that there was that attitude of, of individualism and, uh, you know, cowboy diplomacy in the original series, which became increasingly alien to Star Trek by the Next Generation era, uh, where I'd say they definitely embraced the Prime Directive as a positive thing. And I think in general we would say that that was a well-meaning positive thing uh, that came out of Star Trek, because it's better to not interfere in other cultures, uh, certainly not militaristically and certainly not uh, via things like mercantilism. But the original show may have literally been saying, no, 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 it is better to interfere. Again, depending on who was writing the episode and what the specific uh, context was. But I think that's definitely something Roddenberry uh, might have envisioned. I think with Next Gen, we see the ossification of a lot of things from the original series, from the way things are to the way things ought to be that some of the rules that were laid down, even if they were laid down for the purposes of being things that you broke, ultimately being elevated from just laws to canons of the universe. And I think I think that's exactly right, that with the original series, there's it's enormously difficult to work out a 
fixed philosophical perspective from the original series because it is the result of so many conflicting voices, because it enjoyed such a tumultuous production history that you had line producers like Gene Alcoon and uh, John Black and ultimately Fred Freiberger coming and going. And because you had, at the same time, contributions from external science fiction authors who brought their own unique takes on what Star Trek was. So it's very difficult to say with any coherence that the original series has a particular vision beyond general canons. And indeed, you have some of the same tenets of the universe being approached in very different ways by different authors. And so with Next Gen, we see in some ways an attempt to build a coherent philosophy out of 79 episodes produced by very different people about very different things, often without an enormous degree of internal continuity or coordination, and trying to make something out of what ultimately looks like a magic eye picture. Yes, absolutely. And it's happening in Next Gen as well. But uh, actually, but to go back to what you mentioned, of course, uh, Trek did have these outside uh, contributors who were Star Trek or uh, science fiction writers. Uh, and if Roddenberry was pugnacious, they also had people like Robert Block and Harlan Ellison who were absolutely notorious uh, for uh, not wanting to wanting things their way and not anyone else's way. Uh, I haven't read the. I know there's. Ellison eventually wrote an entire book about his time at Star Trek, specifically the city on the edge of forever. Uh, and I know that that's a that's a pretty great example of. Um, uh, Ellison wanting it one way, Ronbury wanting it a different way, and it was an immovable force and a uh, meeting a or meeting a, a irresistible object. Uh, because Ellison had a very different uh, theme and uh, ideology in mind for for the city on the edge of forever, which was he was extremely opposed to the militarism of Star Trek, from what I can tell, uh, to the point where when he learned Balance of Terror had been a remake of a World War II submarine movie, which it clearly was, um, but that it was based on a specific movie, um, he was actually really angry uh, because he didn't he didn't want it. He thought it came too close to glorifying the militaristic mindset. Um, in uh, City on the Edge of Forever, of course, the, the, the story that Ellison had intended, as I understand it, uh, had not been to uh, portray the idea that, well, if we don't get involved in World War II, the Nazis will destroy the human race, which is the the, the, the message you get out of the finished uh, story. And he was apparently very angry about that. That's almost probably the, na- the main thing he was upset about, the, the finished uh, episode. Do you know more about that, uh, um, uh, Dennis? I'm, I'm not sure. Only, uh, look, uh, uh, in, in broad outline... Um... Yeah, uh, Ellison's, it's difficult to work out in the dispute between Roddenberry and Ellison what are ideological disputes, what are production disputes, what are personality disputes. Part of the objection to Ellison's proposed draft, which did involve at least initially saving um, Edith Keeler and then a return to an enterprise populated by, I think, space pirates. That is to say... uh, that the initial change produced what ultimately became something of a forerunner for the mirror universe. Part of the objection to that was Mm. simply on production grounds, that an already expensive episode would become more expensive. Part of the difficulty seems to have been, as you have said, that Ellison and Roddenberry were both strong-willed figures who both had an intense sense of proprietary ownership over what they saw as going out in their name. But I think... At the core of it, as you have said, is that ideological dispute that 
fundamentally, for all that it is universe, all but universally acclaimed as the greatest, almost classic episode of Star Trek, Sitting on the Edge of Forever is an episode in which an idealistic woman has to die in order to allow for a devastating war that ultimately puts humanity on a better path, and that ultimately her ideals, her sincerity, her idealism are seen as the road to ruin for humanity. And I think that ideological conflict is significant both because we have to reckon with it, if we are to hold up Sitting on the Edge of Forever as a classic, we have to recognise what is this episode trying to say, and because it is enormously difficult to imagine the Roddenberry of 1987 accepting that message, or to reconcile it with how the man himself evolved in later years. Because I think that's, that's the other crucial thing here as well, that we are, that Gene Roddenberry lived for 70 years. Um, he actually died relatively young. Stan Lee was only one year younger than Gene Roddenberry. If Gene Roddenberry mm. had lived longer, he would no doubt have played the same role in contemporary Star Trek that Gene Roddenberry does. He would have played the same role in contemporary Star Trek that Stan Lee did in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So you would have had, for example, when Captain Kirk steals the hot rod in Iowa at the beginning of Star Trek 09, that probably would have been <laughs> Gene Roddenberry's voice on the radio demanding that he return. But the point is, <laughs> as, as I understand it, Gene Roddenberry of 1966 was comfortable with a message in City on the Edge of Forever because that was a Gene Roddenberry who hadn't been changed by, if anything, the experience of engaging with fandom. It's not just a question that Gene Roddenberry put out a message to which fandom were receptive. It was a two-way relationship in that both ultimately shaped and formed each other. And if anything, in the long run, Harlan Ellison might have lost the fight over City on the Edge of Forever, but he was probably right in terms of where Star Trek was heading and mm. what the values that the show ultimately sought to give voice to. It's difficult to yeah. imagine a subsequent Star Trek show being extremely comfortable with the idea that pacifism, idealism, the rejection of violence are ultimately a dead end for humanity. And the show has explicitly and repeatedly rebuked that view again and again. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's ironic because... Um, I mean, even the show as broadcast is not saying, yes, war is good. Uh, it's not like Trek ever takes up full-blown militaristic viewpoint, I would say. Maybe there's a, may, there might be some exceptions to that. Um, you might get into an argument about that, but it generally tends to agree that, you know, we want peace, but how do we get peace? And at, at least in the 60s, I think Roddenberry came down harder on the size of, well, you get, you get pissed, peas with a knife, because we all want peas, as Homer <laughs> Simpson likes to say. Um, and, um, um, I think that that's definitely something that comes out in the first season of Star Trek in the ones that Roddenberry had a strong uh, hand in. Now, uh, we were gonna we wanted to talk a bit about the cage, I think, and I, I just rewatched it just like a few hours ago before we recorded. Um, so that's a really significant episode because, of course, it's Roddenberry's idea of what the show was going to be, and um, it's fascinating, and it, it actually does exonerate Roddenberry in some ways because. One of the big problems with Trek, right up until after Runbury passed on, uh, is that it's for all its progressiveness, there is some real issue with uh, sexism. Um, not 
I wouldn't call it misogyny, but I would call it sexism 100%, obviously, um, especially in the early show. Um, there, But when you watch The Cage, uh, he had a female second-in-command who would have absolutely been an incredibly compelling uh, epical character on television if they had managed to continue with that crew, with Majel Barrett's character number one. Um, she would have been, like, a feminist icon. There's no getting around it. There's nothing about her. Well, of course, the cage does have some sexism, uh, you know, some some splashback, <laughs> sexist wise. They do imply that well, she's uh, she's the way she is because she functions in a man's world and she needs to embrace her inner femininity. And there probably would have been some nonsense like that if the show had gone forward. But nevertheless, the yeah. fact that you've got this very uh, professional uh, woman as second in command of a star of a starship is pretty significant. And given that the show immediately reconfigured itself into, uh, you know, what I sometimes call the rat pack in outer space, uh, with all the mini skirts and everything, um, <clears throat> that does tend to suggest that it was not Roddenberry's idea fully that it would be like that, that it was the network, or that he was at least capitulating to the network on that. Um, when it comes to the cage too, that, so this is the other thing, and it ties into what we were talking about. Um, <clears throat> I find Captain Pike, as portrayed in the cage, and I think they've unfortunately missed the point of him on Discovery, uh, but I find him to be a really fascinating character because he is um, effectively Don Draper in outer space, as I've said to you before. Uh, he is a character who is um, sort of in a liminal space between generations. I mean, of course, he's in it, this is the future, but I, I mean in terms of his place in the pop culture of the 1960s. Um, He's a type of character who was starting to not quite fit with pop culture, as it were. He's the old-fashioned World War II era, uh, uh, two-fisted man of action. Uh, he's a he, you know, he's he's the the equivalent of an old guard World War II guy. Um, he's a he's Flash Gordon. He's Buck Rogers. Um, but now he's in this somewhat more cerebral story that they're telling about, um, you know what is humanity and where are we going and these 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 larger concerns that fed into what Trek eventually became. And he's actually, it's, it's actually, even though it couldn't possibly have been intentional, it's really interesting to look at it as like, he's like the old guard of sci-fi running headfirst into the progressive ideals of Star Trek and being kind of bewildered, even right from the start of that episode, The Cage, uh, he's kind of sitting there going, is this all there is? What is this? Can I just, I can't just punch, you know, aliens anymore. What's going on? What's, what's up with the, uh, with this universe we're in? And it was, it, you know, metatextually, it's him finding his way into the, the pop culture of the 1960s from an older, uh, generation. And I think that lasts all throughout Star Trek, but it's very pointed when you, when you look at Captain Pike. <clears throat> I'm so glad that you suggested discussing the cage. I rewatched it yesterday or the day before in preparation for this, and it is a fascinating artifact. Uh, utterly strange and not really like any Star Trek produced since then. Uh, so I think I'll address two main points, the first being sexism and the second being Captain Pike, but there's obviously a lot to unpack there. Second, I would flatly call it misogyny. Um, uh, uh, allowing that it's not entirely clear to what extent the show is intending, the show is 
presenting Pike as a dinosaur through the views he expresses at the outset. It's when Pike says at the beginning, it's just unusual to see a woman on the bridge. Oh, not counting you, number one. A, that is, as you've said, precisely to show that Pike is something of a dinosaur in this age, that it's not to show endorsing his perspective. It is, as you've said, that he is, to some extent, a man out of time. But I think the more problematic bit may well be when the Telosians subsequently beam number one and Yeoman Colt down and give them character sketches to the point where ultimately they are fixated upon Pike, that um, number one's lack of emotions are ultimately a facade for her infatuation with him. The fact that the show depicts a misogynistic character doesn't of itself make it misogynistic. The fact that the show is even given a surprisingly large cast of female characters still ultimately concerned with Captain Pike as the sun around which they orbit. That, I think, is what ultimately skews its gravity. But what I think is really, really interesting, as you've said, is how Captain Pike, as depicted in The Cage, matches up to how he subsequently depicted in Discovery. Because you're right, at the outset of the show, he is wondering, is this all there is? His two-fisted approach as an explorer, as a relatively traditional soldier, seeming not to offer any spiritual solace, seeming not to offer any real meaning for existence. And certainly, the pike we see in Discovery is nothing like the pike that we see at the beginning of the cage. But all I can say in response to that is that the relatively uncomplicated, straightforward Pike that we see in Discovery, I think can marry up potentially with the lessons that Pike learns during the course of the cage, that he rejects these doubts in favour of living the life that you're given, embracing facts as they are, and ultimately, if anything, rejecting that retreat from responsibility that the cage offers. Because I think that's ultimately the really interesting theme of The Cage, that Captain Pike at the beginning is a man who is struggling under his responsibilities and whose relatively simple verities and relatively simple values are incapable of shouldering the burdens of being a captain in a more complicated universe than what those values are suited for. And he's offered the opportunity to reject those responsibilities, to retreat into a simpler world. Indeed, to retreat into a world in which he gets to live in an explicitly sexist, exploitative fantasy. And he's ultimately a man who rejects that. He rejects that fantasy of being in a world that revolves entirely around him in favour of facing the world as it is and accepting that there are limits to things he can do and limits to things that he can change. Pike Pike in Disco, I think, is A, relatively consistent with that vision of Captain Pike as a man who is more at peace with himself, having had that experience to live in a fantasy and having rejected it. And interestingly, on a thematic level, even if the characters are different, I think they're potentially being used in similar ways by the cage and discovery. Because the key theme of both is that he is a man somehow out of time. In mm-hmm. the cage, he is a man out of kilter with the values of the 1960s. And in disco, he's a man oddly out of kilter with the values of the 2010s. That amidst a relatively complicated cast 
riddled with neuroses and self-doubt. He is a an ideal of a relatively straightforward figure who has not gone through the trauma of the modern, but who offers a simpler and more straightforward set of verities. If anything, the inspiration for Captain Pike in Disco isn't so much Captain Pike in the cage, it's Chris Evans' Captain America. Hmm. Yes. Uh, actually, and well, that's, I think, uh, I think you've really put your finger on it. Uh, I think that um, if you want to read it uh, as some kind of continuity between the cage, discovery, and then going back to the menagerie as Pike's life, as we know it, uh, it is the story of, because the, the, the cage is very specifically the story of someone who is a dinosaur, who is a relic, uh, and he does start to accept it to a certain degree. And so the charitable reading is that he then evolved after his experiences in the cage to the person we saw in Discovery. Uh, and But ultimately, just realized he was a relic, and the Menagerie has him essentially becoming first, you know, literally just an old withered husk of himself, and then being, you know, retreating into the... the he does end up retreating into the past of the cage, right? He ends up going back to Talos and becoming, uh, you know, part of the fantasy world of Talos. Uh, and no longer playing a part in the story of Star Trek. Um, so you can see that as a, uh, as a, as a, it, again, in no way intentional, but thematically and metatextually, that's what's happening. It's, it's kind of a uh, bidding farewell to the old fashioned style gunslinger hero. This was, of course, a very common character in pop culture in the post war period. The sort of the aging cowboy and the Wild West is leaving him behind. It doesn't exist anymore. So he didn't really know what to do with himself. Uh, and this is sort of Star Trek putting paid to that kind of character in science fiction. He's saying, well, we appreciate that you're here, but you don't really have a place anymore. You've got to... And, of course, the fact that he didn't end up becoming the hero of Star Trek really emphasizes this. But you could also argue that what they're portraying there, what they're painting there, is the idea of someone who knows he doesn't fit, who knows his values are old-fashioned, but he is determined to maybe play a role in building this better future anyway. And in Star Trek, it's supposedly already a better future, but you can see the process of... Well, you know, the kids today are building maybe what might be a better world. This is definitely something a lot of people in the 60s thought. A lot of the old hands were looking at the young generation of the 60s and going, well, those kids today, they're going to get the world in shape. They know what they're doing. And uh, you could argue that this is Pike embracing that idea and going, well, I'm going to I'm going to use my old-fashioned uh, manly man, dinosaur uh, sensibility to fight for that world, even though I don't totally understand it. Because remember, the, the cage does literally end with him breaking out by being such a hostile, militaristic, brute force kind of guy. Like, that's what, that's what gets, them out, gets them out of there in, in the first place. And that is a lesson that goes throughout Star Trek, I think. It's, it's, um, it, it ends up being, the, the original series especially, does keep going back to uh, the idea that, uh, oh yeah, um, you know, there's these perfect utopians, but they're built by computers and they want to put everyone in boxes and force people to do things. And I, this rugged individualist, will come charging in, even though I'm supposedly the uh, the inferior uh, relic of the past. I'm not as evolved as you people are, but I'm going to show you. I've got this... This, uh, this, I've got heart still. We've got our, we've got, we've got our human emotions that are at base, which are still ultimately the thing that's gonna, um, the, the thing that's gonna let us win out. Um, 
And that that really is consistent, even with Spock, the fact that the lesson of Spock in the original series is you can't live by emotional or logic alone. You can't be completely unemotional. Uh, the many computers that Kirk blows up by arguing with them logically, uh, like the fact that that is a recurring uh, thing throughout Star Trek, uh, the original Star Trek, uh, is very significant. And again, it's probably Roddenberry working out his issues <laughs> to a large degree. But even the non-Roddenberry writers probably felt like they were a bit you know, they were a bit, unless they were the really young ones, like Kuhn wasn't a young man either, he'd been in World War II, um, and they probably felt a little bit out of their depth in the new world of the, the 1960s, and that's being worked out I, as well, I think, in uh, in the show as we see it. And that actually, and then so then that comes down to um, a major uh, political aspect of the show in the 1960s, which was uh, the Vietnam, Vietnam War which does loom over everything. And it looms over that whole issue with Pike as well. The fact that he's a soldier, but, you know, punching the bad guys isn't as much fun anymore because the Vietnam War is happening while I'm writing this, <laughs> you know? Exactly. And I think Star Trek's relationship to the Vietnam War is part and parcel of its tortured relationship with the New Frontier and with the Kennedy-Johnson administrations in general. A lot of people have drawn comparisons between Captain Kirk and uh, JFK in terms of being youthful, youthful representations of a nation in its prime, uh, of being a liberal idealists whose commitment to a set of values does not stop them from a two-fisted diplomacy when appropriate. Both marry up to a particular vision of how the United States sees itself, or certainly how the United States saw itself in the early 1960s. And obviously the sense of infallibility, the sense of the United States as the indispensable nation, the sense of the United States as beyond historical gravity to some extent is precisely what led the United States into the quagmire and the Vietnam War. So the sense of national self, the sense of liberal idealism as a legitimate motivator for the use of military force that underlies a lot of Captain Kirk's character speaks to a lot of the same attributes that at the same time were driving the United States into social, political, and military turmoil. And I think the contradictions inherent in that and the confusion and driven by that is nowhere better illustrated than A Private Little War, which is as much as anything, Star Trek's episode about Vietnam. Yes, and as I, yeah, I, I mentioned that uh, the Private Little War, uh, which of course, that's the one where uh, Kirk's solution to the problem of non-interference, he's supposed to not interfere uh, with this, uh, this planet, but the, unfortunately the Klingons are already interfering with the planet uh, because they're, uh, they're, they're, they're arming one side of a conflict. And uh, Kirk's solution to this uh, is to give the other side weapons and then back off and keep the Klingons out of it going forward, uh, which is breathtakingly stupid. <laughs> and um, uh, in fact, to the degree that, um, to, to such a degree, in fact, that Next Generation uh, eventually did an episode called Too Short a Season, uh, which I understand there are rumors that it was originally meant to be uh, a, an episode guest starring William Shatner as Captain Kirk. Uh, and that it was going to be him dealing with 
uh, the fallout of that episode. Uh, instead, they have a Kirk stand-in as an old man who starts getting younger, but he's dealing with this one major sin of his past, and the sin of his past is doing exactly what Kirk did in that episode, arming both sides of a civil war and leading to uh, decades of bloodshed after that. Um, so, ne never let it be said that Star Trek couldn't uh, critique itself and uh, subvert itself. Um, and it wasn't just uh, Next Generation that did stuff like that either. It was, um, like, I think that as you see other hands start to come in and take the show, I, I don't want to say take it away from Roddenberry, but take over the show and Roddenberry receded a bit into the background, which it, it feels like Roddenberry sort of felt like, uh, you know, he, he he backed off and let Kuhn and Fontana and those guys uh, play a bigger role and, and because he maybe wasn't quite as engaged with it as much, uh, as early as the late first season. Uh, but you, I think what, uh, unlike Ellison, who just fought Roddenberry toe-to-toe, -to -toe, I think what these people had a tendency to do, if they were going to sort of tweak Roddenberry's nose about his militaristic viewpoint and his uh, Pax Americana stuff, I think what they tended to do was subvert the show from within. And I think you see a lot of episodes that do things like that. Um, Aaron of Mercy, which is the episode that introduced the Klingons, uh, has... Uh, Captain Kirk and Spock going to this planet of seemingly ulti ultimately committed pacifists who refuse to get involved in war, uh, the Organians, who of course we eventually learn are basically omnipotent godlike entities, which is why they don't care. Uh, but they seem at the time to be this these bunch of saps uh, who are going to get stomped on by the Klingons, and Kirk and Spock are, no, you got to do something, the Klingons are going to come, they're going to wipe you out. And, um, and they do, in fact, you know, uh, make... Uh, uh, the, the Klingons conquer the planet, and then Kirk and Spock are, uh, they become essentially guerrilla fighters, uh, trying to fight back, because of the, the, the Organians won't fight back, so we will, and they start fighting the Klingons uh, on the ground. Um, and you can read this a couple of different ways, which is really interesting. Uh, it does play like jingoistic American militarism uh, on one level, where they are essentially doing CIA crimes in this uh, <laughs> in this small country that's being invaded by the communists to prevent the, the, the flow of international communism, emphasized by the fact that the Klingons did feel at this stage like stand-ins for the communists. Um, whereas, but if you look at it a little closer, uh, even putting aside the ending in which both the, quote, U.S., i.e. the the, the heroes, the, the Federation, and, quote, the communists, the Klingons, uh, are both kind of made to look ridiculous by the Organians. Uh, but even putting that aside, you could also argue that it's a story about fighting back against imperialism and the significance of doing that. And even though the Klingons are coded as communists, it wouldn't be a stretch to code them, to interpret them as the United States, either, if you wanted to. Uh, but that's a more sophisticated reading. So it's the kind of thing where you can get away with this superficial reading of, yay, USA, but maybe you're sneaking in absolutely the opposite uh, argument. And I would argue that, actually, Deep Space Nine did something uh, years later, because the, the Cardassians are also coded as uh, communist in many ways. Uh, but the whole Bajoran conflict becomes such a code for this... The, the Vietnam War with the Cardassians as the U.S. <laughs> as well. So it's the same thing where look a little deeper and the metaphor flips itself around politically. I think that's absolutely right. And I think Errand of Mercy is fascinating in this regard, especially as a potentially unintended metaphor for Vietnam because it's ultimately a celebration of complexity. 
part of why a private little war fails is because it is such a thinly sketched conflict that's ultimately, again, about how the Enterprise and the Klingons play it. You have this planet, which is ultimately merely used as a stage for a broader conflict between the Federation and the Klingons, which is consistent with, for example, a construction of the Vietnam War as purely the site of geopolitical struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union, viewing the people in the combatants involved as purely proxies for the great powers who backed them. And that ultimately is part of the bigger misunderstanding that led the United States into Vietnam, viewing North Viet- the Vietnamese struggle not as a fight about nationalism, but purely in terms of geopolitical conflict. The reason why Errand of Mercy is useful and significant in this regard is because it's fundamentally a story about Kirk massively misses the point. Throughout, he insists on viewing Organia purely through this superficial lens, viewing it purely as ultimately a story about him versus the Klingons, and in doing so misses all of the massive, increasingly glaring signs that the planet is so much more complicated and that so much bigger things are going on there. And fortunately, he's ultimately missing that they have the capacity to end the conflict, that he that the Federation and the Klingons are extremely minor power players compared to the power that the Organians can bring to bear. But applied as an analogy for Vietnam, it actually works really well that the United States and the Klingons have charged into a conflict without an understanding of what's actually going on. In the case of Errand of Mercy, that ultimately merely leads to farce and misunderstanding. In the case of Vietnam, obviously, misunderstanding <laughs> of actual forces on the ground leads to tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's 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 um, the show. The original series was not afraid to uh, make Kirk look a little silly, and of course, he was the hero. It you know it, it was the sixties. You can't. Be so subversive that your hero, unless it's a full-on comedy, is a complete clown. Um, you know, the hero always has to be the 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 best character and the the guy who's the most admirable character at, at this point in history. So they couldn't go completely over the top and just make Kirk look ridiculous. And and Roddenberry pr- probably wouldn't have wanted it anyway. And he did have enough say in the show at this point that it still would you know he wouldn't have let something like that slip by him. But the original series is not afraid to make uh, Kirk look a little silly. And if you see Kirk as an avatar of U.S. imperialism, or at the very least the, you know, cowboy diplomacy idea, you do get a sense that a lot of the writers see him as being uh, a bit of a a, a bit of bit of a ridiculous figure at times. Or they're not afraid to at least... Now, you could argue that Kirk himself... Uh, is better than that, and he does ultimately rise above it and learn from these kinds of experiences. So even if he is embarrassed a little bit, he will, you know, get the right lesson from it and go, okay, you're right, I was being a bit of a dass, and let's move on. Um, so, because he is, and he, it is, of course, a better future, it's a utopian future, so that that does make a certain amount of sense. But I, I do feel like, from a political standpoint, that was what the... Uh, the writers occasionally did uh, on the show. They would sneak in stuff like that. Uh, one of my low-key favorite episodes is um, um, The Spectre of the Gun. 
which is uh, cool for a number of reasons. Uh, but one of the things I really... This is a third season episode. And by that point, uh, Trek had been leaning more and more towards the counterculture, which was pacifist, which was, you know, hippie spiritualism and, and getting away from the sort of, uh, again, the, the two-fisted cowboy mentality and the, the technocratic mentality, uh, which is something I want to talk about in a minute. But uh, Inspector of the Gun, he, uh, they, uh, they go to this planet. And it's, it's actually a similar uh, setup because they're thrust into a situation where they may have to uh, fight someone. Um, in that case, they literally know that's a fight they can't win and that they are doomed to die. Um, and they, if they can fight their way out, they don't see the obvious way of doing it. And they embrace a sort of Buddhist principle of, wait a minute, this is an illusion, it's not really happening, and that's how they escape. Uh, but that has a very different mentality to it than anything militaristic in the earlier seasons of Star Trek. It's very much, um, uh, a, a pacifist and spiritualist viewpoint that syncs up with what the what was happening in Aaron of Mercy, and you could argue it's like, well, this is where Kirk has evolved to at this point in the series. If you're going to try and form it into an arcing narrative of Kirk's personal growth and, and the Federation's personal growth over the years, uh, that's essentially uh, what's happened. It, it's gone from we can solve problems with our fists, and the question is, you know, is it right to get involved or not, and military, socio-political stuff versus kind of like, well, okay, maybe we should just shut up and, and listen and, and, and be a little more humble about things. Which, Star Trek has not always been great about being humble, unfortunately. It it does tend to, the characters do tend to, to think they know what's best for everyone. Um, but uh, going back to um, uh, that idea of the counterculture, so that's another thing that Trek went back and forth on as well, because uh, the I like I say I'd say the specter of the gun is very much embracing the sixties counterculture, but then you have the way to Eden, which is the uh, hippie bashing episode of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it is impossible to take the Omega Glory, the one with the planet with the comms and the yangs, the specter and the gun, which features <laughs> half completed set, uh, sets. And a conclusion which ultimately comes from the rejection of the idea of violence. And the way to Eden, the one with the space hippies, and to say that they are all an expression of a coherent, settled viewpoint on the universe and the way that power is distributed within the universe. And I think that that is something which says something also about why the third season is so reviled. It's not purely a question of the quality of the episodes. It's in part a question of the fact that there are experimental episodes. There is mm. wild stuff, like a planet made up entirely of cutout sets in which the, um, the crew have to take part in an imaginary shootout at the OK Corral. It's because yes. it does feature an episode in which they meet an old man who is Leonardo da Vinci and every genius in world history, but now potters around on a planet with his android daughter. It's that willingness to be experimental and to be whimsical and to be challenging and i think that is by and large something which doesn't owe a lot to gene roddenberry going back to our earlier mm. debate gene a lot of gene roddenberry's contributions to the franchise and the omega glory is sort of the apex of this are punishingly straight-faced and literal and lacking in any sense of self-awareness or whimsy or humility 
a lot of the examples of Captain Kirk being shown up, of Captain Kirk ultimately having to recognize the limitations of his abilities. They don't come from Gene Roddenberry, they come from the contributions of other writers working within a framework set by Gene Roddenberry, but doing things with it that he couldn't. Now, as to the way to Eden, and it's the way to Eden is a difficult episode to extract much from because it is so misbegotten. But it is interesting that Spock, of all characters, is the one who identifies most strongly with the counterculture, both insofar as it rejects a particular view of the counterculture as being purely an emotional reaction or childish or juvenile, but it is at least willing to see some common cause between Star Trek's most logical character and these idealists. And because by that stage, Spock was so widely beloved by the fans and so widely embraced by so many of the fans and in fan culture, which brings us to the point that you've identified before and which is going to be a key theme of this podcast, the extent to which that which is progressive about Star Trek is in part because of its interaction with the fan base, rather than necessarily being something that the fan base extracts from the show itself. The fans mm-hmm. see something in Star Trek, Star Trek picks up upon it, the fans pick it up in turn, and so you have a reinforcing loop without an identifiable starting point. 100%. And I think um, that is actually a very good uh, point to sort of uh, wrap this particular episode up. Yes, because that actually does bring us to the topic of the next episode we're going to do. Uh, so uh, I think what we will do is we will uh, put a pin in it. We're going to end this particular episode and um, and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, we'll, hopefully you'll tune in again. Uh, I think we're going to air these on a weekly basis when they finally start to go up, but I'm not 100% sure yet. We're still working on these. Um, but uh, just for now, uh, we'll bid you adieu. I did want to uh, mention, I, I already did mention my other podcast, which is uh, What Mad Universe, uh, which I do with uh, Philip Rice. Uh, that's at, uh, uh, if you Google What Mad Universe podcast, you can find it. It's at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what dash mad dash universe. Uh, I'm also on uh, Twitter as prankster36. Um and uh, that I don't want to say anything else about social media stuff because we haven't figured it out, but uh, quite yet. But uh, uh, we may have a Facebook page for this uh, this uh, podcast at some point. Uh, if not, you can follow us on, uh, or you can follow me on Phantasmic Tales on Twitter, which is P H A N T A S M I C T A L E S. Um, so that was plugging me plugging my pluggables. I don't think Douglas has anything to plug. Uh, do you, Douglas? Nope. I have nothing that I wish to plug <laughs> at this time. Yeah. Douglas has an actual career, so uh he doesn't need he doesn't need his uh his social media uh to be blowing up and to become a an influencer on Instagram. Uh but I did want to know uh I did want to let you know that uh that stuff is out there. Uh so uh we're going to uh say goodbye for now. Uh we hope to see you again as we continue in this podcast to explore Uh, all the various facets of Star Trek. So until next time, live long and prosper. We'll see you on the other side.